we're going to read from uh, Joshua and we're going to read all of chapter 6. So please follow along with me. Now the gates of Jericho were securely barred because of the Israelites. No one went out and no one came in. Then the Lord said to Joshua, See, I have delivered Jericho into your hands, along with its king and its fighting men. March around the city once with all the armed men. Do this for six days. Have seven priests carry trumpets of rams, horns, in front of the ark. On the seventh day, march around the city seven times with the priests blowing the trumpets. When you hear them, sound a long blast on the trumpets. Have the whole army give a loud shout. Then the wall of the city will collapse and the army will go up, everyone straight in. So Joshua, son of Nun, called the priests and said to them, Take up the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord and have seven priests carry trumpets in front of it. And he ordered the army, Advance, march around the city with an armed guard going ahead of the Ark of the Lord. When Joshua had spoken to the people, the seven priests carrying the seven trumpets before the Lord went forward, blowing their trumpets, and the Ark of the Lord's Covenant followed them. The armed guard marched ahead of the priests who blew the trumpets, and the rear guard followed the Ark. All this time the trumpets were sounding. But Joshua had commanded the army, Do not give a war cry, do not raise your voices, do not say a word until the day I tell you to shout. Then shout. So he had the Ark of the Lord carried around the city, circling at once. Then the army returned to the camp and spent the night there. Joshua got up early the next morning and the priests took up the Ark of the Lord. The seven priests carrying the seven trumpets went forward, marching the Ark of the Lord and blowing the trumpets. The armed men went ahead of them and the rear guard followed the Ark of the Lord while the trumpets kept sounding. So on the second day they marched around the city once and returned to the camp. They did this for six days. On the seventh day they got up at daybreak and marched around the city seven times in the same manner, except that on that day they circled the city seven times. The seventh time around, when the priest sounded the trumpet blast, Joshua commanded the army, Shout, for the Lord has given you the city. The city and all that is in it are to be devoted to the Lord. Only Rahab the prostitute and all who are with her in the house shall be spared, because she hid the spies we sent. But keep away from the devoted things, so that you will not bring about your own destruction by taking any of them. Otherwise you will make the camp of Israel liable to destruction and bring trouble on it. All the silver and gold and the articles of bronze and iron are sacred to the Lord and must go into his treasury. When the trumpet sounded, the army shouted, and the sound of the trumpet, when the men gave a loud shout, the wall collapsed. So everyone charged straight in and they took the city. They devoted the city to the Lord and destroyed with the sword everything living in it, men and women, young and old, cattle, sheep and donkeys. Joshua said to the two men who had spied out the land, Go into the prostitute's house and bring her out and all who belong to her in accordance with your oath to her. So the young men who had done the spying went in and brought out Rahab, her father and mother, her brothers and sisters, and all who belonged to her. They brought out her entire family and put them in a place outside the camp of Israel. Then they burned the whole city and everything in it, 
but they put the silver and gold and articles of bronze and iron into the treasury of the Lord's house. But Joshua spared Rahab the prostitute with her family and all who belonged to her, because she hid the men Joshua had sent as spies to Jericho, and she lives among the Israelites to this day. At that time Joshua pronounced this solemn oath, Cursed before the Lord is the one who undertakes to rebuild this city, Jericho. At the cost of his firstborn son, he will lay its foundations. At the cost of his youngest, he will set up its gates. So the Lord was with Joshua, and his fame spread throughout the land. Well, good morning, everyone. My name's Stuart. I'd like to add my welcome to you this morning. Uh, whether you're here in the factory or whether you're online with us this morning, welcome. I'd also like to give a special welcome to our uh, friends from Cornell Anglican Church who've come to join us today. Welcome. You're very, uh, it's very exciting to have you here with us to have fellowship today. Well, we're going to continue to dive into our series on Joshua, and today we come to a very famous part of the story, the uh, story of Jericho. And my question for us this morning is, how do we understand this story? Now, when I was young and I was in Sunday school, as some of you may have uh, experienced Sunday school too, this was quite a regular story during my Sunday school days. And I used to have a fairly simple understanding of this story in my early days. Basically, when I heard this story told, I heard it as an exciting story of heroes and villains, battles, daring acts of bravery, and people's failure, but God's strength in the light of people's failure to be able to achieve what he's going to achieve despite human weaknesses. However, as I got older, I became more and more troubled by the fate of the Canaanites in the story and spent less time thinking about the victory of the Israelites and started thinking more and more about the devastation of the people who were in Jericho. Um, that particularly was um, peaked for me when I had a, a fairly amateur interest in archaeology for a little while uh, in my journey and came across um, archaeological stories of the digs around Jericho and the archaeological evidence at Jericho is quite confronting. Uh, as they dug down through the various layers through history of the cities of Jericho, when they came down to some of the base levels of the city, they literally found a scorched level of the city that had been completely destroyed. And that brought home to me, I think, that this was quite a significant event for the people of Canaan. And I tried to work out as a Christian man, how do I understand this story? Now, obviously, I wasn't amused or uh, tantalised by some of the new atheists' description of this story in the 2000s, particularly people like Richard Dawkins, who uses the story of Jericho to describe God as a homicidal murderer. Now, obviously, I wasn't going to be interested in those arguments and actually quite offended by those arguments, but yet, as a Christian, I was still concerned. I was also concerned to understand how I can approach this story when so many of my non-Christian friends... And there may be uh, Christians here today and people who are still searching into the things of Jesus today too. So this may be even an issue for some of you today. That how, how, Some of my non-Christian friends were saying to me, how do I trust in a God who, is, who has uh, laid waste to a city like this? And so this is a very real question for us this morning. How do we approach the story and understand the story of Jericho? Well, what I want to attempt to do for us this morning is give us a framework that can help us to understand how to read this story. And I think we start with the character of God as we begin, because after all, this is part of his story. And he is a key actor, in fact, the main actor in this story. And I want to remind us this morning that God is good and that he is good all the time. So if God is good and he is good all the time, surely there is a way of understanding this story to see that this story is a righteous story. This is a dramatic story, 
But what we'll see as we understand it from the framework of the goodness of God is that it's a dramatic story of God's judgment against evil and injustice. And it's also a story of his mercy and his saving power to forgive sinners. So what we'll see here is that God does not turn a blind eye to evil and injustice and he deals with it. He's a right and good God. But he also gives mercy and forgiveness to people who repent. So we need to understand this story in the context of God's saving work for the whole of humankind. We need to understand that this is just another step in the story of that beautiful, long history that we have in the Word of God. And of course, in the light of Jesus, this will bring this story of Jericho into sharp focus for us this morning as well. So where I want to start is I want to look again at the fact that God is good, and I want to draw to our attention that God always keeps his promises. He always fulfills his promises. And to understand the story of Jericho, we actually have to go back a few chapters. So if you've got your Bibles open, uh, you might like to get your Bibles open and flick back to uh, Genesis chapter 12, because we're going to look at the original promises that God made to uh, the father of the Israel people, Abraham. Because, interestingly, this story is actually an ongoing fulfilment of God's promises to Abraham. So have a look at Genesis chapter 12, verses 2 to 3. If you don't have a Bible, the verses should come up on the screen behind me as well. This is what God said to Abraham in verse 2 of chapter 12. I will make you into a great nation, and I will bless you. I will make your name great, and you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you, and however, uh, sorry, and whoever curses you, I will curse. And all the peoples of the earth will be blessed through you. So here, when God calls Abraham and talks to Abraham about what God's plans are that he wants to include Abraham in, he tells Abraham that his plans will include blessings and cursings. In other words, mercy and justice. So there will be judgment and forgiveness for people because of Abraham. Now, as the uh, story unfolds, basically he says to Abraham, this story of mercy and judgment is going to have three parts. And the three parts to the story is that he promised Abraham that he would become a great nation, that that nation would inhabit a land, and that through that nation living in a land, living differently to all the other peoples around them, they would be a blessing to the whole of the human race. So they're the three promises, people, land, and blessing. So in Genesis chapter 15, verses 18 to 21, you might want to flip over to that a couple of chapters later, we read this. On the day the Lord made a covenant with Abram and said, to your descendants I give this land, from the water of Egypt to the great river Euphrates, the land of the Canaanites, the Kezazites, the Kadamites, the Hittites, the Pezites, the Rephaites, the Amorites, the Canaanites, the Gigashites and the Jezebusites. So basically God is saying that there is a people that are already inhabiting the land that he is going to give to the people of Israel. So how is that going to work? Well, as the story today unfolds, we're going to see that there's going to be blessings and there's going to be judgment when it comes to the people who live in that land. And we rejoin the story as we remember that after Abraham did indeed have a son, that son went to become a great nation. And that great nation moved into Egypt. And when they were in Egypt, they were enslaved by the Pharaoh. And yet, despite their slavery, God raised up Moses to lead the people out of Egypt and God himself defeated Pharaoh. So convincingly that word of that travelled all the way to the land of the Canaanites. They heard about this story. 
so that the people, and Rahab in the story uh, in chapter 2 in Joshua talks about the fact that the people of Canaan know about this. Basically, God liberated the people from Egypt and even as the Pharaoh changed his mind and decided to chase the people after they'd left Egypt, God opened the waters of the sea and they passed on dry land. But then when the chariots of Pharaoh came, he closed up the sea and destroyed those chariots. So God himself was fighting for the people of Israel. Moses led the people to Sinai and they made a covenant. God gave them the Ten Commandments, that beautiful description of his own character that he was inviting them to share in. And the Ten Commandments were something that the people of Israel did not obey. So they wandered in the desert for 40 years. So here in that part of the story, we see that already God has fulfilled his promise to Abraham that the people would become a nation, but yet they still do not have a land. So here, when we come to Joshua chapter 6, we're starting to see the fulfillment of that prophecy, the fulfillment of that, that, that promise that the people would have a land to inhabit. And it is the story of blessing and curses, of mercy and judgment. So we rejoin the story again here today um, after Joshua has sent spies into the land to spy out the land. Now, when the spies go in the land, uh, we see what happens in chapter 2. So what I want you to do is to jump forward from Genesis chapter 15 and open your Bibles again to Joshua chapter 2. We uh, skipped over this chapter in earlier teaching on Joshua because this chapter 2 is actually directly related to chapter 6 in the story. Because here we see how the spies go out from Israel to spy out this new land that God has promised them and they go into the land and they go to Jericho in particular. And in verse 1 of chapter 2 we see that Joshua, son of Nun, secretly sent two spies from Shittim. Go look over the land, he said, especially Jericho. So they went and they entered a house of a prostitute named Rahab and they stayed there. Now that was quite clever of them to do that because it would have been quite easy to hide as strangers in the city in the house of a prostitute because the house of a prostitute would have had strange men coming and going all the time. So that was quite clever. But we read in the story in chapter 2 that despite the fact that they were quite clever, the king of Jericho actually discovered that these spies from the Jewish army are there, probably because they looked and sounded different. I'm sure the gossip got around the city quite quickly. And they were already terrified of these spies. They knew they were about and they were looking for them. And the king sends a letter to Rahab saying, you need to hand over these men to me. Now... Today, most of us have houses with sloped roofs, don't we? But back in this time, the houses would have flat roofs. Uh, lived in a very hot country, and so you might want to go for a sleep on a hot night on your roof, and you'd have a sleep on your roof. Or if you had produce, you might spread the produce out on your roof to dry it, things like that. It's very practical to have a flat roof. So Rahab is like that. She's got a house on the wall of the city, and she's got a flat roof, and so she covers the roof with flax and gets the spies to hide under the flax. Uh, that's what uh, is described to us there in chapter 2, verse 6. She'd taken them up onto the roof and heated them under stalks of flax and she laid out on the roof. Now, in verse 8 and following, we read how the story continues. Before the spies laid down for the night, she went up on the roof and she said to them, Now, I know the Lord has given you this land and that great fear of you has fallen on us so that all who live in this country are melting in fear because of you, in verse 8. I want to pause on that for a moment. Isn't that an amazing spiritual insight from a Canaanite woman who does not know the Lord? What she's recognised there is not that the Israelites are coming against her city, but the Lord is coming against her city. The one true and living God, the Lord, has given the land to the Israelites. Not only is the Lord coming to attack the city, but he's already won. 
And so she says to them, going forward in verse 10, we've heard how the Lord dried up the water of the Red Sea, which I said earlier, for you came out of Egypt and what you did to Shinon and Nog, the two kings of the Amorites, east of the Jordan, whom you completely destroyed. And when we heard it, our hearts melted in fear and everyone's courage failed because of you. For the Lord your God is God in heaven and above all the earth below. I love the story of Jesus on the cross. When that thief on the cross, remember that story? When the thief on the cross turns to Jesus and says to this condemned person on a cross next to him, he recognises that he's the son of God and he recognises that his only hope at this time of his last time of need, very, very end of his life, the only chance he's got is to call out to Jesus and say, please save me. And Jesus turns and responds to his, his faith by saying, what? what does he say? Do you remember? Today you will be with me in paradise. Well, we get a very similar kind of glimpse of faith from this Canaanite woman who turns to these spies and she says, please may the Lord save me. This is a call of faith. This is actually an act of faith that this woman is um, doing right now, this lady Rahab. Well, in verse 12, uh, this is what he said. Now then, please swear to me by the Lord that you will show kindness to my family because I have shown kindness to you. Give me a sign. The way the spies respond is this. This is basically what they say, just to give us a bit of a summary. They say, look, you're on the wall of the city. If you bring all of your family to your house, when, when we attack you will be spared as long as you have a cord hanging out your window and the scriptures describe that cord as the color red it's a scarlet cord isn't that a wonderful wonderful symbol has it already occurred to you that that symbol is both looking back and forward at the same time remember the story in Egypt when the angel uh, the, the the angel of the Lord's army came over Egypt and killed all the firstborn sons of the Egyptians and that angel swept over the whole of the land except for the houses that had lamb's blood daubed on the doorposts. All the people who were inside those houses where there was the lamb from, that was killed at the Passover, the blood was put on the door and the angel of death passed over those houses on the Passover. That's where we get the name Passover. Remember too that just as the people come into the land, they renew their covenant with God with circumcision and they hold their first Passover in the land when they come into the land. And then they put a pile of rocks up to describe how God actually, which we're going to hear about in a minute, actually lets the whole army pass across the Jordan on dry land just as he had them pass over the Red Sea on dry land as well. So here we have this scarlet cord as a symbol, as a marker, and just as the, the angel passed over the houses in Egypt and spared the firstborn sons in those houses, so despite the Lord attacking Jericho, her house will be saved because of that cord that's hanging out. But it's not only looking backwards to the Passover and a similar symbol there, it's also looking forward to Jesus. Because the symbol of Jesus' saving act for the whole of humanity is the colour of his blood. As he hung on the cross and his blood dripped down from his hands and his feet... That red symbol is a symbol of our salvation too. So the spies go back and they report all these things to Joshua. And in chapters 3 and 4, they do indeed cross the River Jordan and they come and they are ready to attack. In chapter 5, as I said, the people can recommit themselves to the covenant. And Joshua goes out before the people and he has a strange encounter in chapter 5 that is very important for us to understand as we look at the story of Jericho. Before they attack in chapter 5 verse 13, I'd love you to turn in your Bibles to chapter 5 verse 13 or it should come up on the screen. 
This is what we read in verse 13. Now when Joshua was near Jericho, he looked up and he saw a man standing in front of him with a drawn sword in his hand. And Joshua went up to him and he asked, Are you for us or for our enemies? Neither, he replied. But as the commander of the army of the Lord, I have now come. And Joshua fell face down on the ground in reverence and he asked him, What message does my Lord have for his servant? The commander of the Lord's army replied, Take off your sandals for the place where you are standing is holy. And Joshua did so. Do you see that lovely little comparison between Moses at the burning bush, bush standing on holy ground, taking off his sandals on holy ground, and Joshua, who is the new Moses, the new leader of Israel, taking off his sandals in obedience to the Lord's instruction that he's standing on holy ground? It's a beautiful picture there. But there's something else there that we need to not miss. When Joshua says, whose side are you on, Jericho or us? He was terrified that if he's met this mighty warrior and that mighty warrior is on the side of Jericho, he has another deadly enemy to face. But the angel confronts him with something that's a magnificent response. He said, the Lord is not on the side of Jericho and the Lord is not on the side of Israel. The question is not whose side is the Lord on. The question is, whose side are you on? The question you should be asking is, are you on the side of the Lord? And by Joshua taking off his sandals, he is saying, I am on the side of the Lord. And that, I think, is the question for us today too. In all the trials of our life, in all the struggles that we go through, of all the travails that we go through, the question isn't, is Lord on my side? But the question in each of those struggles is, am I on the Lord's side? It changes your perspective dramatically. And Joshua has this proper and right perspective as he is about to go into battle on the Lord's side not asking God to be on his side. This is not the Israelites versus the Canaanites. This is God's battle. This is God's judgment on the Canaanites. So when God had promised the land to Abraham, now God is going into battle with the Canaanites to give the land to the people of Israel. If you think back to Genesis chapter 15, 16 for a sec. This is what um, we read in verse 16. In the fourth generation, your descendants will come back here for the sin of the Amorites has not yet reached its full measure. Remember earlier in chapter 15, God had said to Abraham that there will be through him, there'll be blessing and there'll be cursing. That yes, he will become a nation and they will have a land and be a blessing to all people. But to those who do not repent, there will be judgment. And even back when he was talking to Abraham, God saw the sin of the Amorites. He saw the sin of the Canaanites. He knew their great sin and their great evil they were perpetrating in the land. When I had trouble with this story as I grew up, I, I, I used to see the Canaanites as this benign group of people suddenly being attacked by the people of Israel and God himself and their city laid waste and given to another people and as I didn't as I said earlier I didn't actually jump to the conclusion that that was a genocide but I actually still struggle with that and you may still struggle with that but here we see that God is good all the time and as God sees the evil of the Canaanites he is giving them time to repent four generations they had to change their ways but by the time Joshua comes along in the story it is the fourth generation and it is time for there to be a decision from the Canaanites are they going to repent and turn to the Lord and turn away from their evil or are they going to turn towards hardening their hearts to God? Well, their evil was great. We read that in Leviticus, Deuteronomy, 2 Kings, Jeremiah, Ezekiel. 
many passages in the Bible describe that the Canaanites worship of their, their false gods, Molech and Baal, those gods demanded sacrifices of the own children of the Canaanites. In Deuteronomy chapter 12, verse 31, we read this, You must not worship the Lord your God in their way, because in worshipping their gods, they do all kinds of detestable things that the Lord hates. They even burn their sons and daughters in the fire as sacrifices to their gods. Now that actually starts to bring this into more focus, doesn't it? If God is good, he is not going to overlook such a crime. He is going to stop that kind of criminal activity. And in Deuteronomy chapter 7, verses 1 to 2, we read this. When the Lord your God brings you into the land you are entering to possess and drives out before you many nations, the Hittites, the Girgashites, the Amorites, the Canaanites, the Pezzasites, the Hivites, the Jebusites, seven nations larger and stronger than you. And when the Lord your God has delivered them over to you and you have defeated them, then you must destroy them totally. You must not make a treaty with them and show them no mercy. Now, this is the difficult point. God is judging the people of Canaan completely. Now, scholars have a word for this. There's a Hebrew word for this kind of warfare that is called harem. And it is to, the word harem means to devote something to total destruction. And that is what God is calling on the people of Israel to do in Deuteronomy chapter 7, to destroy them completely. Now, this is difficult for those of us who are Christians. And some Christians try and work out how to understand this by making a differentiation between the New Testament and the Old Testament. Some people would argue, well, Jesus' ethics changes and improves the ethics of the people of Israel. The ancient practices of ancient Israel were brutal practices and they've been left in the past and changed by Jesus. However, Jesus himself did not regard this story in such a way. And that causes a problem for that kind of view. Because after all, when he spoke about Sodom, he spoke approvingly of the destruction of another city that was just as evil as the Canaanite city of Jericho. And when he spoke about that in Luke chapter 17, verses 28 to 29, this is what he says. It was the same in the days of Lot. People were eating and drinking and buying and selling and planting and building. But the day Lot, Lot left Sodom, fire and sulfur rained down from heaven and destroyed them all. There was the judgment of God on their evil practices. So we can't make some kind of distinction between the ethics of the Old Testament and the New Testament. Then how do we understand this? We do believe God is good and he is a God of love. So what is this harem law and how does this harem law help us today? Well, to answer these questions, we must place the harem law in the history of redemption. Israel was called to be a unique people, God's covenant people. Their task was to prepare the way for the arrival of the Messiah, Jesus, and therefore Israel's own mission foreshadowed Jesus' mission in a number of ways. Their purity laws pointed to the holiness demanded by God. Their sacrificial laws, like sacrificing animals, not kids, pointed to our need for atonement, that we need to have our sins paid for. And their laws concerning harem warfare pointed to God's judgment against sin. See, there's a continuity between the Old Testament and the New Testament as God's attitude towards sin. He's angry and rightly wrathful towards the burning of children on altars. In all of these aspects, Israel's laws were signposts to the spiritual realities behind Christ's redemptive work. There's a scholar um, 
called Tramper Logman, who summarises this point, and this is what he says. I'm going to read it out to us this morning. We must point out that the Bible does not understand the destruction of men, women and children in these cities as slaughter of innocents. Not even the children were considered innocent. They are all part of the inherently wicked culture that, if allowed to live, would morally and theologically pollute the people of Israel. It's a very hard teaching. But it actually helps us to understand how significant sin is and how terrible even our own sin is. Remember in Genesis 2.17 and Romans 6.23, Old Testament and New Testament, there's a continuity with regard to the description of the whole human race. In Romans 6.23, Paul says, For the wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus. Ultimately, every unrepentant sinner has to face God. But there is mercy and blessing as well as judgment and cursing, as God promised to Abraham. And mercy comes before judgment. How are the Canaanites going to respond to the God who deals with sin and demands that it ends? Are they going to repent of their sin of killing their children and repent and put on sackcloth and ashes as the people did when Job went and pronounced the judgment of God on their cities? Well, it's a little bit more complicated than that. We already have read in chapter 2 that one Canaanite family repented. Rahab is an example of the mercy that came before the judgment. And we see that mercy always comes before judgment. Deuteronomy chapter 20, verse 18. God gave Israel explicit reason why it was necessary to wipe out the Canaanites, that they may not teach you to do according to all their abominable practices that they have done to their gods, so that you do not sin against the Lord your God. They weren't to pollute themselves with the ways of the Canaanites. And we see in Rahab an individual who has repented and wanted to go the other way, to actually leave her practices and come and take up the practices of the Israelites. She is a classic example of the mercy of God. She swore allegiance to the Lord in chapter 2, and she's later held up to be an example of faithful obedience in the New Testament in Hebrews chapter 11, verse 31, and James chapter 2, 25. They celebrate her repentance. And do you know that Rahab goes on to become not just a forgiven Canaanite, but a full-fledged member of the people of God. She's adopted into the family of the Israelites. She becomes the mother of Boaz, who was the one who marries Ruth in that beautiful book later on in the Bible. And even more majestically, in Matthew chapter 1, verse 5, she's listed as one of the ancestors of Jesus Christ. From her womb came Boaz, and from her descendants came the Messiah who saved the whole world and actually saved her eternally, as the people of Israel saved her that day at Jericho. This is the setting of the Battle of Jericho. Now that Christ has come, we understand how to apply harem laws. It's been radically transformed. The judgment that was foreshadowed and exemplified in Jericho is actually the decisive judgment that's poured out on Jesus Christ on the cross. That is the climax of harem law that God's wrath and anger towards sin is poured out on Christ and whoever looks to Christ can be forgiven for their sins, their crimes. To repent and turn from our wicked ways, we can actually be forgiven because of Jesus. 
who was obedient to his father unto death so that we may actually not have to experience God's judgment personally. Like Rahab, we can escape the coming judgment if we trust in the scarlet cords of blood that drip from Jesus' hands as a symbol of our own salvation. So briefly then we come to the battle itself. Joshua chapter 6 verses 1 to 2 is what I want us to remember the most from this whole little section. Have a look at verse 1. The gates of Jericho were securely barred because of the Israelites and no one went in or came out. What a contrast that the rest of the city had to the lady Rahab. See, their gates of their city were locked as they were attempting to defend themselves against the living God. And unfortunately today, the gates of our hearts can be either open or locked. That we can lock our gates towards God and harden our hearts towards him and think that we can oppose him or we can open our gates and we can actually accept his forgiveness for us. Mercy becomes before judgment, but judgment is coming for those who have not repented. And in chapter 6, verses 3 to 5, the army marches around the city for six days and then ultimately in 6 and 7, the priests were called to take up the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord and the seven priests carried the trumpets in front of it and the army marched around the city and around the city. And then in 15 to 25, we read that on the seventh day, they marched around the city seven times. Imagine you're a Canaanite standing on the world the walls of the city watching all this activity before you. Surely there must have been an opportunity in those moments, those days actually, seven days for repentance, to unlock the gates. Because as the Ark of the Covenant was carried around the city, that was the actual presence of the living God with his army. It wasn't the people of Israel who marched around the city, they were just spectators. It was God himself who was marching around the city. And they again, despite the fact that they'd already had four generations to repent, now they had another seven days to repent, but they still did not. And as a result, the judgment comes. Harem, verse 20, when the trumpet sound, the army shouted, and at the sound of the trumpet, when the men gave a loud shout, the walls collapsed. So everyone charged straight in and they took the city. They devoted the city to the Lord and they destroyed with the sword every living thing. Men and women, young and old, cattle, sheep and donkeys. It's very confronting. And it doesn't make sense unless you see that the climax of this harem is not on that day, but that day itself is a warning to us to take mercy while we still have a chance to because the climax of harem was on Jesus Christ himself. Longman also writes, the war against the Canaanites was simply an earlier phase of the battle that comes to its climax at the cross and its completion on the final judgment day. The object of warfare moves from Canaanites, who are the objects of God's wrath for their sin, to the spiritual powers and principalities, which we read about in Ephesians, don't we? Isn't it interesting that in Ephesians, Paul says that our battle's not with flesh and blood, but with principalities and powers? And finally, the utter destruction of evil, human and spiritual. So I want to end this morning with our chance for repentance, as Rahab had. And I want to read to you three simple verses to give us comfort and encouragement at this time. I may not have answered all your questions this morning, but I hope to have started a conversation. Because in Romans chapter 2, verse 5, we read this. But because of your stubbornness and unrepentant hearts, you are storing up wrath against yourself for the day of God's wrath, when his righteous judgment will be revealed. Don't be like the stubborn people of Canaan who locked their gates. Open your hearts and repent. If we do, in 1 John 2, 2, 
He is the propitiation for our sins. And not only for ours, but also the sins of the whole world. What does the word propitiation mean? It simply means the turning away of God's wrath. Jesus himself places himself in the place of the city of Jericho. He is destroyed completely on the cross so that we don't have to be. And so in 1 John 4.10, this is what John says finally, this is love, not that, God lo- not that we loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son as a propitiation for our sins. That is true love, that God loves us so much that he doesn't want us to be destroyed, but wants us to repent. So my final question to you this morning is, where will you be when the trumpets sound? Will you have your gates closed or will they be open? Will you be asking, is the Lord on my side or his side or her side? Or will you be asking yourself, am I on the Lord's side? And if, like Joshua, you want to be on the Lord's side, remember the way to the Lord. Jesus himself said, I am the way, the truth and the life. So I encourage us this morning to take off our sandals and stand on that holy ground of Jesus Christ. And there we will triumph. And there we will live. Amen.